We're going to be reading our passage today, which is from Matthew 27, verses 11 to 54. It's a bit of a long read, so settle in. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. 
About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Thanks, Beth. Well, perhaps with those words echoing around in our hearts, let's just pray and then we'll, we'll unpack it together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christmas time, that we can remember the birth of a king and we stop now to reflect on what that king came for who that king was and, and his purpose that he came for. Lord, as we reflect on the cross, we just pray that uh, you will deepen our appreciation for who he was and you will deepen our love for who he is. Um, Lord, we pray this in your name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see so many people here this morning. I think it's one amazing thing about Christmas is the way it brings people around and unites everyone around the coming of Jesus. And you're probably all thinking, look, we've come, it's almost Christmas time. We've been singing Christmas carols, we've been talking about the birth of Jesus, and here we are talking about now, we're reading a passage about the cross. Well, I think the rationale there is two weeks ago, um, Nathan talked us through the genealogy and the birth of a king, um, and today we're going to learn about the crucifixion of that king, because I know that the leader's heart is that the deeper our understanding of the cross is, the deeper our understanding and appreciation of the birth will be. Um, so that's why we land here in Matthew 27 and we'll continue to reflect um, on the coming of Jesus on Christmas Day itself as Shabu's already flagged. Now we're going to be talking a lot about king, um, the idea of a king this morning. And I think everyone has different ideas in mind when you think about a king. I don't know what comes to your mind when I mention the word king, what image of those perhaps you can most relate to. Those who are monarchists out there are probably thinking Prince Charles next in line to the throne. When I think king, I think of him. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll let you reflect on that yourself. For those elder parts of the congregation, maybe you're a music fanatic and you think about Elvis the king. How he changed music in the 50s, 50s, 60s, 50s? A long time ago. <laughs> yeah, Maybe you think of history when you think of the king and that's what you're doing right now. Shane Warne, the spin king, jumping forward a few decades, um, he could do whatever he wanted with that cricket ball and was known as the king of spin. Um, perhaps a lot of you can identify with the fourth picture there in the corner um, in that the word king is really just a fairy tale. Um, it's a fantasy concept. It's something that doesn't really translate or impact us here and now. You know, we all have different impressions or different ideas come to mind when we reflect on the word king. And the Bible makes it very clear that whether we can relate to the idea of a king or not, we have a king. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the son of the most high God. He's the one who reigns and rules over all things. Amen? That's why we celebrate at Christmas time, the coming of our newborn king. That's right. Now, right from the time of his birth, we're told that he was a king. 
Nathan reminded us a couple of weeks ago that his genealogy, if you like, is a genealogy of a king. He comes through a line of kings, some good, some bad, but irrespective, it was a royal genealogy almost. Um, in chapter 2, then, as you go on in Matthew, you, you, see, you read about the wise men coming, and they went to Herod looking for a new king. Um, we heard in the communion focus about the gifts that were given to Jesus. They were the gifts of a king, particularly the gold, as Anthony reflected on this morning, which was really insightful. You know, the, answer, the events of Christmas are ultimately just about this, the coming of our newborn king. That's what we celebrate. That's what the carols love to declare. And this is why the idea of a king is a critical to our understanding and idea of Jesus. Because until he's our king, he will never be our saviour, will he? Until we recognise his reign and rule and authority over our life, then we will never receive his grace. Until we surrender ourselves to him and recognize his position as Lord over our hearts, then we will never live, until we do that, we will never experience the fullness of life that only he can provide. This is why we need to understand the idea of the sort of king that Jesus is if we're going to understand Jesus and what Christmas is really about. Now, we've reflected um, a little bit about this, but the idea of a king that's portrayed in Matthew 27 is very different. It's a very, very, very different of a king idea and picture of a king than the one you would ordinarily expect. In verse 11 to 26, we get the idea not of a glorified king or someone which is really praised or put in high esteem. He was a rejected king. In verse 27 to 44, we see that he wasn't one that was held in high regard. He wasn't one that was honoured in the way he should have deserved to be. He was a crucified king. And then lastly, in, in verse 45 to 54, at the back end of this section that we're going to look at today, we see that he's a saviour king. Now, our aim, as I've already touched on, is that as we reflect on this picture of a king and who Jesus was and what he, why he came, it will only deepen our celebration of his birth this Christmas. So let's walk through this now. Now, I hope you've got a Bible in front of you because as you gathered from um, what Beth read, we've got a fair bit of territory to cover and I'll be sort of summarising the narrative as we go through, um, but it's encouraging. There'll be signposts on the screen um, which will keep you in mind with the section that we're looking at. So I'd encourage you to have it before you so you can journey along as we work it out this morning. Now, Matthew 27, look, I appreciate that you're kind of coming to this text a little bit cold, so I think it's probably helpful to set a bit of the scene. The chief priests, the elders of the, the, elders of the, of the, of the people, of the Jews, they've brought together their plan to bring about the downfall of Jesus. Now, Judas has delivered Jesus over for, for his price, and he's, he's betrayed Jesus, if you like. They've all charged into the Garden of Gethsemane with their soldiers and authorities brought him under arrest. Uh, they put him before the religious authorities, a starting point, the Sanhedrin, and they accused him of crimes against God, if you like, blasphemy. But they realized that they didn't really have the authority to bring about the outcome that they were really seeking. So then they went to the Roman authorities. And that's where the passage today that we read picks it up as Jesus is before Pilate in verse 11 of chapter 27. And at the very beginning of this chapter, Judas is starting to get a picture of the reality of the plans that they have for Jesus 
and he's so guilt-stricken by what he's facilitated, if you like, that he actually takes his own life. So we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 11. And 11, we see Jesus' authority is questioned. So he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate queries whether Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Now, that's what he says that's being proclaiming, and, and the accusations continue from the chief priests and the elders, and it says in verse 12 that Jesus just he gave no answers to these accusations. He didn't respond to the charges that were being brought before him. And Pilate ends up completely amazed at the fact that Jesus doesn't really seem to mount any defense. These were quite these are extremely significant charges, if you like, that were being brought to him. They had extremely significant consequences for him, but yet he doesn't even bother to well not bother is the wrong term, but he doesn't mount a defense for it doesn't mount his case or his side of the story. Now you've got to ask the question why, don't you? I think if each of you and I were placed in that scenario, you can imagine we would be, there would be an impassioned plea about why we were innocent and why we shouldn't be brought before this authority, but Jesus doesn't go there. You know, from Jesus' perspective, I think there was simply no need for a defense. There was no need for any justification because he had already made himself known. He had shown himself for who he was through his signs and wonders. He'd shown himself who he was through his teachings. He'd shown who he was through all that he had done and all that he had said. The issue now was simply about whether people were going to accept that. The issue was really about how they were going to respond to that truth. And what we see in Pilate here is that he doesn't really know how to respond. He doesn't really know what to do with this person. He just stands there amazed. You know, I wonder what your response to Jesus is this morning. There's a lot of people here who um, probably come from different walks of life. Some might be very familiar with the Christmas narrative and the narrative of the cross. Others may be less familiar. But we're all placed with that same, we're all um, placed with that same person before us, Jesus Christ. And I wonder how each of us are responding to him this morning. You know, like Pilate, do you sit here this morning asking similar questions? Is he really king? Why should I surrender my life to him? These are good, honest questions that we are all that are all placed before us, before each of us. Now when they were placed before the people at that time, there was a very definitive answer that was given, a very definitive rejection of Jesus. You see, Pilate found himself in a bit of a predicament. He's got this person, Jesus, where he can't really find that much wrong with him. He can't really find a really strong case to do what they're wanting him to do. But if he doesn't do something, he faces the prospect of a local uprising, if you like, from the people that he was trying to keep the peace over. So to try and get himself out of this mess, he tries to draw on a local custom of releasing a prisoner. And he brings out the notorious, a notorious criminal at the time in Barabbas, thinking, surely if I can give them an option here, and they can have the convicted criminal in Barabbas, or this Jesus guy that hasn't really done much wrong, surely um, they will give a rational answer and just release Jesus and get Pilate out of this mess. You know, there's an interesting line that says he knew that it was self-interest that Jesus had been brought before him. You get the sense that there was the self-interest of the religious authorities that were bringing them here. They wanted Jesus out of the picture. 
because he was threatening their authority. And Pilate thinks, well, if I can give this choice to the people, then maybe he'll get a ra- we'll get a rational response. And what we see then, as all the people are then presented with Jesus and Barabbas and they're given this choice, what we see is this incredible contrast. In verse 19, there's this fascinating verse where Pilate's own wife says this to Pilate. It says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. And the ESV translates it as righteous man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. There's a clear recognition here from Pilate's own wife that this was an innocent, righteous man. You see, Jesus didn't need to say anything because those who were open to what God was saying at that moment, those who were open to what Jesus was claiming to be, then they would know that he was exactly who he said he was. He was innocent. He was righteous. And you see that coming through in what's said from Pilate's wife. But when you throw it open then to the chief priests, to the religious authorities, to the spiritual ones, the leaders of the Jews, what do they do? What's their response? Well, they set about to persuade the crowd to release Barabbas. In their minds, he's not innocent or righteous. He's the guilty one. So guilty, in fact, they would release notorious criminal in order to have Jesus and his complexity and what he stood for removed from the picture. Now, Pilate's clearly taken a bit back by this response. It sort of takes him off guard. It's not the outcome, I think, that he was really expecting. But the crowd simply starts shouting for Jesus to be crucified. They're presented with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one and only Son of God. But they turn their back on him. They reject him and they demand his execution so they don't have to deal with him anymore. These dramatic scenes between Pilate and the crowd, I think, are a stark reminder of the choice that is before each and every one of us. In fact, each and every person who's walked on this earth is faced with this choice. See, when we read the words in the gospel, we're presented with the person Jesus Christ, the person, and we're forced to decide what he stands for. The gospel paints a very clear picture of him being king. Not just king of the Jews, but king of the Gentiles, kings of all nations, tribes, and tongue. He was the king of kings and the son of God. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. If you're going to come through the Father, if you're going to enjoy eternal life, will you come through me? So like the crowd before Pilate, that leaves us with a choice, doesn't it? We've got to do something with that statement. We have to respond to it in some way. So will we choose Jesus and accept him? Yes, you are king. Or will we reject him, turn our back on him, push him away so we can continue to rule our own life as king? You can see here that God sent Jesus as our Lord and king and now we are called to respond. We have a choice to make. We have to do something with this person. I wonder how you respond. Do you choose to invite him in? Do you choose to accept him as king as Lord, give him the place in our hearts where we know that he deserves, the place which is rightfully his? 
Or do we turn our back on him and say, Jesus, you're a bit too complicated? You're a bit too much? I don't know if I'm ready to surrender my life to you? You know, we can all be like that, can't we? In a lot of ways, it's a lot easier for us to maintain the rulers of our own life, to be the rulers of our own friends, our own finances, to be the rulers of our own jobs, to be the rulers of our own households and families, to make our own decisions and determine our own steps. It's a lot easier that way, right? But if there's anything we can learn from our recent studies of judges, for those who attend irregularly and and been through that series that we journey through as a church, it's that truth that echoes again and again the fact that we actually need a king, don't we? As a people, we desperately need a king, but we need a good king. We need a righteous king. We need a perfect king. And we are not it, are we? We will never fulfill that criteria. Pilate's wife says, innocent, righteous one. The crowd said, crucify him. I wonder what your response will be to Jesus this morning and as we enter into this Christmas season. So having turned their back on Jesus, we get this then devastating narrative about the mocking and about the abuse and the punishment of Jesus Christ. In verse 27 to 31, we see Jesus being mocked. And these, these verses will probably be familiar to a number of you who, who are more regular at church. But as we pause to reflect on them, we've got to really try and put ourselves in the place of what this confronting reality um, would have been for the brutal treatment of Jesus that we see as a result of the crowd's rejection of him. See, this is the son of the one and holy God. This is the king of kings. This is the one who has been sent from the right hand of God, dwelt in the heavenly places. He's descended down to live amongst us. And this is the treatment that he received. Instead of being embraced, instead of being loved and worshipped like we all know he deserved, instead of being recognized for who he was, instead of all those things, he was stripped naked, we read. He was mocked as he was characterized as a king. Mockingly, a crown of thorns placed on his head, purple robe, staff, despite the fact that he really was just, he, he was a king. He shouldn't have been mocked as one. He is tortured. He is beaten. He is spit on. And he's bashed over the head repeatedly. And then he's led away to be crucified. You know, in some ways you can't be confronted with that historic account of what happened to Jesus. And, and it's hard not to ask the question, why, isn't it? Not to ask the question, um, but why would God allow this to happen to his only son? Even if he had to die, why don't we just skip to that bit, right? Why do you need to drag him through this horrific treatment? I think there's two aspects to that question. And the first one is it shows God's view of sin. It's vile and disgusting. It's not right. Sin is an offense to God. Sin does to our heart in a spiritual sense what these soldiers were doing to Jesus in a physical sense. It abuses, it mocks, it enslaves, it makes a complete mess of our lives. 
Satan, after all, is the great abuser of our souls, isn't he? He grabs hold of our lives and he turns them into this mess that feels beaten and lifeless and without any hope or any real way out. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Whether it's through our own broken relationships or broken marriages, whether it's through our own selfish desires that we can't seem to break hold of or our feelings of inadequacies or failures, feelings as though we just get trapped in our addictions or our struggles, whether it's from abuse of one form or another in our own life, Satan wants to beat us up until we feel like there's nothing left. Sin is not a beautiful thing. It's not an acceptable thing. It's not something we should flirt with from time to time. It is the great abuser of our soul. So in this moment, it's like Jesus is, is representing but also enduring the weight of that on our behalf. But Jesus' treatment doesn't just remind us of God's view of sin. It reminds us of God's incredible love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He knew this treatment was before Jesus and yet he never held it back. He knew what would happen and yet he still sent him on that Christmas morning as a newborn baby. He knew the path that lay, that lay ahead of him, but it was always part of his plan all the way back from the beginning of creation. Isn't he an amazing God? Jesus himself knew the path that was before him. And so when it comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's on the verge of what's happening, you read about him sweating drops of blood because of the anxiety of the treatment that was going to follow. But Jesus himself never held anything back because of his incredible love for us. Instead, he gave up everything so that we might move from death to life. He was abused so that the great abuser would no longer have mastery over our souls. He was beaten and mocked and tortured and killed so that we could be set free, so that we could be given life all by the grace of God. That's what this king did. You know, he's not a king that was sent to lord it over his people, to just bark commands or orders at us. When you read this narrative, you get this snapshot of a loving king who would hold back nothing from his people, from the children that he loved, for those who would step out and surrender their lives to him. He did all this so that the same fate would not be ours. Then Jesus is not just mocked, he is crucified in verses 32 to 37. You see, he's so, he's so sapped from what they've done to him then. They bring in Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross up to Golgotha, where he is crucified. They offer him drink. He refuses and they divide up the clothes um, and all that he has left. Placing a, par a plaque above his head said Jesus, that said, King of the Jews. It's interesting, isn't it? That plaque proclaimed the truth that none of the people would accept. Now, you would think that's enough of the torture, right? But it doesn't end there. Just as he's almost at the point of death, those passing by insult him. Said the chief priests, the religious authorities, they continue to mock him. Even those who were crucified next to him, and he's at this point of almost death, they continue to insult him. All of them along this same theme that if you really were king, why wouldn't you just save yourself? 
If you have all this power and authority, why don't you just take yourself down from the cross? Sometimes I think we can throw the same insults at God. If you were real, wouldn't you have made yourself known to me? If you were really who you said you were, then my life wouldn't be like this. A man has always tended to question and criticize Jesus rather than trust in him and trust that he is exactly who he said he was. Now here he is, crucified on the cross, beaten and abused for our sake, and those who are before him continue to question and criticize rather than trust. You see, Jesus could have taken himself down from that cross at any time. He'd healed the lame, he'd healed the sick, he's fed thousands of people from a few loaves of scraps of food. He himself has caused the dead to raise to life. He could have taken himself down from that cross at any moment. It was never an issue of his power or ability. It was always an issue of his obedience of his father and his love for us. He knew it was only by his blood that we would be set free. He was declared guilty and punished on the cross so that when it's our time to appear before the great judgment seat, not just the judgment seat of Pilate, but the eternal judgment seat before the Heavenly Father, the declaration that would be given on us would not be guilty, would not be crucifying. It would not be punished them. God's declaration would be innocent, righteous and perfect. This great eternal exchange is, I think, something we will never fully appreciate until a time we are before that judgment seat and we see the reality of what Jesus achieved in its fullness. Remember, Jesus took on our punishment for sin so that we might be spared from it. Is that your testimony this morning? Is this great exchange that we're talking about a reality for you? Because the answer to my first question will give you the answer to this question. What is your response to the person Jesus Christ? Because if the response is, he is my king and he is my saviour, then this great exchange is a reality. Jesus' innocence and righteousness then becomes your innocence and righteousness. His, his sacrifice for sin is then done on your behalf and this, your sin is then erased and forgiven because of the grace of Jesus. But if your response to Jesus is to turn him away, say that's too hard and complicated, I'm not going to deal with that, then the harsh reality is our sin is still on our heads. We bear that punishment. We bear the weight that needs to be given before God to recognize all that has been done. And our only hope is then to turn to the gracious Lord Jesus. And he says when we do that, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us because he's a king that came to love. He's a king who came to save. It might be that this is a reality for many of you. You might say this great exchange was a reality for us some time ago. Well, in that case, maybe God's trying to remind you of two things. The seriousness of sin... And the depth of his love for you. You know, what does your life and your choices reveal about your attitude towards sin? 
Do we view it with the same gravity and weight that is, review, that is revealed or portrayed through these verses that we read of Jesus' treatment? Do we take it seriously? Do we acknowledge it for the damage that it does to our hearts and our souls? And maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you beat yourself up over your sin and instead it's the depths of his love that we need to be reminded of. The fact that Jesus was abused and was beaten so that we didn't have to beat ourselves up now. But we can just return to him and receive his love and grace. The king that is our one saviour king. So Jesus has been rejected by his people, he's been mocked and tortured, and now he's at the point of death as we move into verse 46. We're told that it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It says that even though it's the middle of the afternoon, darkness descends over everything. You can tell that this is therefore a significant moment. Something significant is going to happen at this point. And Jesus makes this well-known statement then, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what does that mean? Did God the Father really forsake God the Son, Jesus Christ? Well, up to this point, we've been a witness to the physical agony of Jesus. I think it's through this statement we start to get a window into the spiritual agony of Jesus. And this is what sin does, doesn't it? It leaves our lives in a mess. It leaves our souls in a mess. It reaches down into our heart and it fractures the intimacy that we have with God. It creates separation and it creates distance between us and our walk with God. And this is why Jesus was forsaken, so that we might be reconciled. There's this beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, But in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be reconciled. And as if to show that the things for Jesus in his death were no different from those um, in the lead-up to his death, those around him still continue to mock and insult him. You get the sense they just have no idea of the significance of this moment. Because in verse 47 to 49, the significance of it is lost on them because they think Jesus is just calling out to Elijah for some reason. They offer him a drink, but then they leave with this statement which almost has kind of a sarcastic tone to it. Well, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But this king didn't need a saviour. He is the saviour. He didn't need anyone to take him down from that cross because he willingly put himself on it. And then he cries out one last time, it says, in a loud voice in verse 50, and it says that he gave up his spirit to God. And it says in John chapter 19, verse 30, he says, It is finished. The debt for our sin... Paid. The penalty of our sin, satisfied. The power of our sin, broken. All because it is finished. Amen? Amen to that. The work that he came to do was finished in full by the giving of his life on the cross. It is paid in full. It is done. There's nothing more for us to add. You've got to get your head around that. There's, nothing, there's no other ways we can perfect this work. There's nothing else we need to do because it is by faith that we have been saved. It's a grace. It is an act of God and it is done. 
the salvation that we can know and experience, the release of our sin, the life that we can have in God, all the work that this newborn baby was sent to achieve was fulfilled at this point in the cross where he says, it is finished. The work is done. And the more we get our head around that, both who Jesus was and what he achieved on the cross, the deeper and richer our celebrations at Christmas will be, won't they? Because finally, when we go through this journey, we've seen him mocked, we've seen him destroyed, we've seen him rejected. Finally, in these last few verses, we get these dramatic scenes of what's going on and we finally get this recognition of Jesus for who he really is. You see, in verse 51 to 54, there's all these supernatural events going on. Dramatic events that would have left people in a state of wonder and amazement. You can't help but think. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, showing, the, showing us that man is separated from God no more. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Through Jesus, man is separated from God no more. That relationship can be restored. He was forsaken so that we could be reconciled. And then the earth shakes, rocks split, tombs are broken over. In other words, Jesus reigns over all creation. Bodies of holy people are described as being raised to life to show that Jesus reigns over both the living and the dead. He is ruler who reigns over all. Jesus is truly being portrayed here as the king of kings. And they're intentionally dramatic because they scream out of the page that Jesus is Lord. That something significant has happened in this moment. He is exactly who he claimed to be. He is exactly who he ought to be, the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the king of the Gentiles, the king over all creation. He reigns and rules over all things. It's amazing. And then ultimately you see this recognition in the response of the centurion who's observing all these events in verse 54. It reads like this. It says, When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was the Son of God. Remember, all people are called to recognize Jesus for who he is. Our Savior and our King. Surely this was the Son of God. When you look at that truth, it's interesting to reflect on the way different people responded to that truth through this passage. Pilate questioned it. Are you really the king of the Jews? The people rejected it. Crucify him. We're not interested. Those around him mocked it. If you're king, then you should just save yourself. Finally, the centurion acknowledges it. Surely this was the Son of God. I wonder which of those will be your response this morning. Who is Jesus to you? Will you question it? Is this really him? Do I really owe everything to him? Will you reject it? Will you mock it? Or will you acknowledge it? For he is the king of kings who reigns and rules over all things. He's the one who is forsaken so that we might be reconciled to God. 
and now he stands before you and wants to reign and rule over your heart too, as he does my heart. Will we kneel down, bow before him and acknowledge him as our Lord and King? Running to the arms of our loving King, our Heavenly Father, who held back nothing from his people, but surrendered all things in order to save them from themselves. So on Tuesday, we will celebrate the day this king was born. We'll give presents, we'll enjoy friends and family, we'll have amazing meals, and so we should, shouldn't we? It's an amazing time of celebration, for the reality of the birth of this king is an incredible truth that we should celebrate because it reminds us of God's love and his absolute determination to, to, to um, take the initiative to save us from ourselves. But the more we can wrap around our head around who Jesus really was and what Jesus came to do, the deeper and richer I think those celebrations will be the more we will be in awe of him and the more our eyes will be opened to the incredible love of God and the salvation we have through him alone. For he is king. Born on that day was the king of kings. He was a rejected king. He was a crucified king, but only so he could become a saviour king. May that be the Jesus we bow down and worship together this Christmas, for he is truly great and worthy of all glory and honour and praise, isn't he? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is our King. We thank you that he reigns and rules over all things, and we acknowledge that he wants to reign and rule over our hearts too. Lord, may we individually and as a church just want to surrender ourselves to that king, to pray to not reject him but accept him as king, to not turn our back away on him but to embrace him and run into his loving arms and to acknowledge him as the saviour king that he is. Lord, may you be glorified this Christmas as you held back nothing from us but sent the... Um, sent Jesus Christ to reign and rule and to begin a work that was then completed on the cross. Lord, we praise you for that and we acknowledge him as the great king, the prince of peace. Lord, we praise you for this and, and pray that you'll be with us together as we celebrate him this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.